Welcome back to episode three of For the Greater Defense with Associate Professor of the Practice, retired Colonel Matt Gill. Last week we left off talking about how Colonel Gill had returned to the United States to uh, continue his education with the U.S. Army. So it's about 2009. Colonel Gill, can you tell us a little bit about why the Army uh, brought you back to be more educated and uh, what did that look like for you? Whether you're in the special operations community or whether you're in the conventional world, there there is an academic pathway for officers and and soldiers in the Army and and actually all the services. Uh, But specifically, when you're kind of a mid-grade officer, and at this point in time I'm a major, you're really supposed to go to an education program at Fort Leavenworth, uh, Kansas, uh, that kind of teaches you how to be a a mid-grade officer and a staff officer and kind of walks you into being a senior leader just a little bit. But I was having too much fun in the special operations community. I wanted to deploy. I wanted to be at the forefront of all the problems the nation was having. And so I kind of waited until my last couple of years uh, when my branch manager called me and said, Gil, um, you got to go to school or you're not going to get promoted. And I said, okay. So I was actually in Africa at this point in time, and I got the call, and I I said, okay, let's go. And this was February of 2009. Uh, flew back to the States and let my wife, and by this time we have three kids, and said, hey, uh, I'm moving to Newport, Rhode Island. I've got to go to school. And my family was stable in northern Virginia. The girls were in a great school. My wife had a good job. Uh, and we kind of both made the decision that, all right, despite all the deployments, we're not going to uproot the family. And the family's going to stay in northern Virginia, and, and for the next 10 months, I'm going to go up to Newport to the Naval War College. Interestingly, I'm an Army officer in a Navy academic institution. The Navy does that. We take Naval officers as well into ours. But I have to tell you, hands down, the Navy War College at Newport, Rhode Island is probably the best academic environments uh, for the military that I've ever been in. And so I, I loaded up my truck at that point in time. I kissed my family goodbye, and I uh, was coming home about once a month, so it wasn't like I was totally deployed. They would come up and visit me in Newport. And I sat down for the next year and studied strategy, was not prepared for that. I was studying economics, was not prepared for that. Starting to study executive decision-making, and I was not prepared for that. I had been in war constantly for eight and a half years at that point in time, just the continuous deployment grind. And the United States Navy and the Army was asking me to be a student again. And that was really a tough transition. It was. It took me probably about two months uh, just to emotionally get past the war for just a little bit of period of time and to uh, get into a significantly high standard of academic performance that the Navy requires. So did you see the value in that at the time, or were you kind of reluctant to to enter that academic world? Well, as my wife will tell you, I'm not the most mature man, uh, even now in my late 40s. uh, She'll still remind me of that. Uh, But no, I didn't see the value in it at all. I wanted to be in the fight. I wanted to be with the boys and the girls uh, forward. You know, the nation was at war. And who is the army to tell me that we're going to take you out of the football game and put you on the bench for a year? But I got over myself pretty pretty quickly, or the Navy required me to get over myself pretty quickly. And I jumped into my studies because, you know, one of the first rules in special operations is know your environment and learn to work within it. And I'm in an academic environment, so I'm going to be elite there or attempt to be. Did you then, so you dove headfirst into it. Uh, now looking back, do you see uh, how important that was 
at that point in your career looking back? Oh, well, one, from just an academic standpoint, the, the Navy is, is, is tremendous. And, and so just getting in my brain housing group, learning how the military works, learning why we go to war. And once we're there, why do we make the decisions that we do? And then how do we win? And I think that's the that's the big thing that the the Navy War College talked to us about. It was was not just what is war and what is strategy and you know and Clausewitz and Mahan and all the great military theorists that are long since dead, um, but how to win? How do we win the global war on terrorism? And that's what we lived and breathed every day. From a personal standpoint, I didn't know I needed it, but I absolutely needed it. My first month at the Navy War College, I would come home from class and I would go to sleep. And I wouldn't wake up until the next morning at class. Maybe I'd wake up and go get something to eat. But I did not truly fully understand the mental and emotional toll that eight years of continuous deployments takes on the human body. And maybe this was God telling me I needed a rest. I needed to take a break. Maybe I was heading down a bad pathway. And you know, now I look on it retrospectively. I know I was on a bad pathway, but this was a break I needed, and I took full advantage of it. Had the Navy or the U.S. military in general uh, caught up to the unusual nature of the global war on terror and and tried to study what does victory look like in the global war on terror at that point, as opposed to maybe the traditional understanding of warfare? Well, I think that's – so this was by this time we're in 2009, and I think we absolutely – or at least the military academic institution was really far out in front of senior decision makers in D.C. and the Pentagon and the White House uh, and, and even forward. And and when you get the chance to come out of those combat roles and get a chance to take that break, that's when your body gets to take a rest and your mind gets to kind of shift into thinking, not reacting and acting. And again, self-admittedly, I'm an action-oriented guy. Uh, academics does not come easily to me. And so when you even look at the Bush School here at Texas A&M right now, we're examining problems and solutions for future conflicts, not just the conflict that we're in right now. And so I think, yeah, absolutely. At the, by 2009, I think the national decision-making apparatus was far on its way into figuring out how do we win this thing. So you spent some time at the Naval War College. Can you tell us about maybe your favorite class or what was the topic that drew you in and was most interesting to you? You know, as a special operations guy, you're just kind of binned in the special operations elective. And so it was kind of like being at old home week. Uh, you know, the rest of the, the, the theory, uh, like I said, Clausewitz, studying Clausewitz and, and Duhay and Mahan, those were really, really interesting to me. But my electives actually were what really uh, interested me more because you got handed real world problems. And in the special operations elective, which was all the SEALs, all the Green Berets, all the special operators, we were all in one classroom. And uh, this is when uh, Admiral Olson, the commander of SOCOM, came on the meeting with us and essentially said, how do you get SEALs out of the desert? Uh, Gil, I need you to take this on. And my immediate response was, one, I'm not a SEAL. The next, I'm not in the Navy. Why are you asking an Army guy to solve a Navy SEAL problem. And trust me, all the Navy SEALs in my crew were in my class were kind of looking at me with this jaundice eye and go, why is the Army guy figuring this out? Because he's going to tell us to go back on the boat. And I told him to get back on the boat. So, so after the, the War College experience, uh, what was your next assignment and uh, why was that where you needed to be? 
Yeah, so so at this time, I know I'm I'm promoting to lieutenant colonel, um, and one of the organizations I was a part of uh, offered me my dream job. It had been something I had competed for, that I had fought for, that I, that I don't know necessarily think that I had the hubris to think that I was qualified to do it. But I got a phone call from the commander of that organization, and he said, Matt, I, I would like you to come down to base, and, and we want to go ahead and interview to take this job. And, and that guy knew that this was my dream job, and he just handed me the apex of what I felt was my career at that point in time. But having learned the lessons of 1999 in my special forces uh, attempt with my wife, uh, I said, sir, I got to ask my wife. And uh, it, I think that kind of took him back just a little bit. It really, Wait a second, Gil. Nobody says no to me. Nobody says no to the unit. You know, this organization, you, you're, you're all in or you're all out. And I said, sir, I need to, I need to ask my wife. And so I, I hung up the phone with him. I don't, don't think he was really expecting me to hang up on him. Uh, and I called my wife. It was the middle of the day. And, you know, middle of the day with toddlers is kind of an active event-filled day for a mother. And, uh, and I said, you know, Jenny, they, this is the job that I was offered. And, uh, and she said, I, I don't think that's what we want to do. That's not what I want to do. And uh, I said, okay. And, uh, and so for the second time in my career, I had put my career and my faith and trust in my wife. And, and uh, I you know, said, okay, I'll call you back. And so I hung up the phone, and I called that, that uh, organization's commander back, and I said, Say, sir, thank you for the opportunity, but you know, I'm going to have to decline this one. And, you know, we all get those moments in our lives where we choose our careers or we choose our families, and we try to seek balance. And in that point in time, I think the pendulum swung in my wife's favor, and she made the right decision, just like she made the right decision in 1999. But the very next day, I got a phone call from uh, General Flynn. He is the Joint Staff J-2. And he said, hey, Matt, you're graduating. What are you thinking? And I said, well, sir, I just turned down a great job. And he said, yeah, I heard. He said, the next fight is here in D.C., and we need you here. So what was that fight that he was referring to? Yeah, so this is 2010, and we have a brand-new administration uh, with certain specific goals that they want to achieve, and they kind of took a little bit different approach to national security. And one of those national security concerns was how – are we waging this war and what can we do to make it better? And so uh, I moved back to D.C. It was great. My family was already there and settled. So I bought two and a half more years of stability for my kids and my wife. And I went to the world's largest adult daycare center, also known as the Pentagon. And uh, I ended up being the counterterrorism intelligence advisor to the deputy director of special operations uh, to the Joint Staff J-2 and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And as you entered that very different world than uh, the places you had been before across uh, the Middle East and Africa, um, did that require a shift in your mindset of how to maybe attack or, or go into the challenges that you were facing? Or did you go through a very similar process in facing the challenges in the Pentagon versus overseas? Well, you know, you go back to the first rule of soft other than always look good, which is uh, know your environment and learn to work well within it. You know, talk about a completely foreign battlefield. Um, love or like or hate D.C., it, it, is, it is really constantly in competition with itself. And when you get to the Pentagon in 2010, we're, we're nine years into this war 
it's always the same, well, just one more year, just one more year. And now you have a new president with a new way of making decisions, uh, and, and he's the president. And so we, the Department of Defense, have to adjust to his decision-making, not him to us. And so if you were to ask me back in 2010, the first day I walked into the Pentagon, I was just so foreign. If you were to put me back in Iraq with Kit, I know exactly what to do. If you send me to Somalia, I know exactly what to do. But when you put me in the Pentagon at the apex of military decision-making, I, I was a Christian in an unholy territory. I felt completely out of my depth, even though I just finished up a year in, in one of the finest academic institutions there are in the United States. And, and yeah, it took a lot of adjusting, uh, mainly me adjusting to it, not it adjusting to me. So what were those specific uh, challenges that you faced in your first, uh, say, year in, in the Pentagon? Well, that was just the level of decision making. You know, when you're forward, is it do I hit this house? Do I hit that house? Do I go left in the door? Do I go right in the door? They, they're very, very finite, intel driven decisions. But when you're at the apex, at the presidential level, at the chairman and the secretary of defense level, it's no longer do I go left or do I go right? It's do I invest military power in Yemen? Do I invest more military power in East Africa? Do I go in with the French on this next adventure that they're taking? And you still have to perform intelligence, defense intelligence, to support that question. Luckily for me, I had a very small account, and that was the counterterrorism world, still supporting. Uh, by this time, it's Admiral McRaven. He's now the commander of the, the, the unit that I used to belong to. And, uh, and it's really translating what we see as the special operations solution to counterterrorism into White House decision-making. And that is a completely different world. They weigh risk different than military commanders do. It's not necessarily good or bad. It's just, it's just wholly different. So can you talk a little bit about national security decision-making? Um, how did your role as a counterterrorism advisor and, and more so a, just coming from a defense intelligence perspective, how does that fuel national security decision-making? Well, so when you're talking about on the battlefield, uh, you know, you are directly swimming in the intelligence. You're involved in it all day long, and you're working this problem all day. And, and up at the command level, you're working five or six problems. Well, when you get to the White House, you're working hundreds of problems a day with a very orderly approach to the national security decision-making process, uh, eventually reaching the top of that, which would be the National Security Council and the President of the United States. And how do you distill intelligence in a powerful, brief way, in what we talk, powerful brevity, uh, taking 3,000 pieces of information and distilling it into four talking points so that you know the president can make a decision? And it's just completely different. Earlier off, Mike, you had talked about the authorization for the use of military force, and that was a big reason uh, why General Flynn had asked you to to go take the fight to D.C., as you talked about. Can you talk a little bit about what that meant and, and how you played a role in that? So the authorization for the use of military force was, was a part of a legislation that enabled the presidents of the United States at that time to invest military power in conflict in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and, and globally for the global war on terror without declaring War Without the Congress declaring war, it allowed the president to allocate military resources to, to problems. Uh, but a part of that AUMF authorization to use some military force in the counterterrorism world was 
Iraq and Afghanistan, people were used to. Operations in Yemen and elsewhere in Somalia, they just weren't used to it. So the propensity for risk is, well, the national security, one of the national security points the president made was, you know, I don't want to increase war globally, right? We're already into wars. Do I really want to start a new one? And so every time we looked outside of Iraq and Afghanistan at, a, at a military operations, we would go to the president for him to review it. And it was that piece of legislation was the authorization for the use of military force. Did they support al-Qaeda? Uh, were they members of it? Did they swore by out to bin Laden? Did they self-professed al-Qaeda and act on behalf of al-Qaeda? And those four criteria, most intelligence professionals would say, well, that's easy. We just got to pick them up on the radio talking to bin Laden, and they're good. Now we can go after them. And it's not that easy. And so for the first three or four months, I found that the intelligence work I was doing, the president was saying no. He, he, I was not able to inform the chairman or the executive in a, in a really concise manner to get them to say, yeah, this is, this is enough to weigh risk. Let's go do this. And so after a, a, another failed attempt at supporting Admiral McCraven at that point in time and the chairman, I finally just said, I, I am not living in my environment well, so what's my environment? Well, what was President Obama? He was, he was a lawyer. Jay Johnson, the Office General Counsel uh, for the Secretary of Defense, was a lawyer. And so I did some history on both of them. And then I figured out, gosh, they worked at some point in time in the prosecution world. Well, what's the difference between evidence and intelligence? Not a whole lot, except how you present it. And so I went into the third federal district court's rules of evidentiary procedure. And from that day forward, I would use the legal mechanism for imparting evidence in a course case in a part of a prosecution to a judge. And that's how I presented my intelligence. I started using legal terms as intelligence terms, presenting intelligence as evidence. And just by shifting how I communicated with the decision maker, they were able to weigh risk much, much better. Even just that discussion right there, when you talk about uh, viewing intelligence as evidence, kind of hints at what we had talked about in a previous episode about the creativity required for, uh, for work in intelligence. So that's a very applicable point. Uh, so earlier you said that as you entered the Pentagon, uh, you, you continue to ask for one more year to, to solve the problem. Uh, having already spent min- much time overseas, um, did you th- ever really think that one year was going to be enough? Or, or were you just fighting the political battle to, to get that one year? Well, I think the Defense Department, you know, we, we, we kind of had some clear objectives and we had some not so clear strategic objectives. And, and, and again, the orderliness of war that we all grew up studying, there was nothing really orderly about this. Uh, and so when the national military apparatus would come back to the president and present that one more year, we just need another year in, I think it tended to confuse everybody. But for me specifically, I once again on that second year in the Pentagon found myself in that same mentality of being in Ramadi or Fallujah that, okay, today is just one more target and tomorrow will be another target and one more raid and one more brief to the president and one more brief to Congress and then one more this and then one more that. Uh, And then obviously May 11th came around and that was the bin Laden raid. And I think that was, one, a tremendous victory for America. Uh, showed the strength and bravery of uh, President Obama in making the decision to go ahead and doing that. 
but also the Navy SEALs and the special operators on the ground for executing it. So what happens when you wake up the next day and the king is dead? And we all on May 12th didn't take a sigh of relief. There was no dancing on the gravesite. But there was this undercurrent of thought across the military of, is it over? And the answer is no, it's not over. We, we, we still have strategic objectives to get at. And I think it's just those logical breaks, and, and they were untrue. We still had a war to fight. We still had initiatives in Afghanistan and still had initiatives in Iraq to keep going after. Well, I think that's a perfect time to uh, lead into the next episode where we'll continue this conversation about what the next step was going to be after um, the bin Laden raid. So uh, we'll, we'll pick that up next week and really look forward to continuing uh, the conversation with you, Professor. All right, Jacob. I really appreciate it. And gig em. Gig em.